Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... This whole idea of compliance is actually not good enough. It's a minimum standard. And you know, people think that if they get a signature on something, that then, then that's good enough. And I just thought, you know what, it's so far from it. Workplace health and safety compliance may not produce scintillating pillow talk, nor does it thrill most employers. Let's face it, for most companies, big and small, compliance in the workplace is a giant pain in the neck. While working as a private investigator for insurers, young Luke Anir was virtually spying on workers' compensation recipients, snooping for cheats. But Luke quickly realised he could disrupt this business, turn it upside down and create best practice by helping prevent workers having accidents and going on workers' comp in the first place by trying to improve their workplace safety. So from his garage, Lucanier started selling safety guidelines as Word documents. Then when Apple's revolutionary App Store exploded on the scene in 2009 on every iPhone, Luke Anir seized the opportunity to create a flexible mobile app that was essentially a safety checklist to suit any workplace. He called it Safety Culture, and what began as a teeny startup with a $10,000 loan from his dentist, Luke has grown into a global business with offices in the US and UK and almost 28,000 companies using their iAuditor product. With the help of venture capital fund investments, Safety Culture hit the prize unicorn status in 2020 with a $1 billion valuation. Then in May this year, 2021, Safety Culture raised a further $99 million from venture capital, valuing the company at a staggering $2.2 billion. Yes, billion dollars. So how did this high school dropout from suburban Townsville get here? And what did he learn along the way from supporter investors like Atlassian's Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar? Well, let's hear now from Luke Anir. Luke Anir, so good to have you join us on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you. Hi, Helen. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Oh, it's great to see you and, and meet you. So you're home on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland? That's right. Yeah, I go between here and Sydney. So, yep, it's a pretty good part of the world. So <laughs> it's home for me for now. Yeah, no, lucky you. So, Luke, I want to start with safety culture. You help guide companies through their safety and quality compliance, which might sound a little tedious, and that's probably exactly why companies just love you. They don't want to do it themselves and would much prefer you to help them do it. Is that part of the success and what safety culture is? 
Yeah, I guess so. The workplace health and safety is probably not the sexiest subject. It's it's probably not the content of the you know pillow conversation before you go to sleep at night. But my background as a private investigator led me to, I guess, see the consequences of when people were injured at work and, and when things go wrong. And so the safety culture started in 2004 as like a training company really to help people train their staff better. And then in 2012, we became a technology company. And that was when we released the app by Auditor which was a checklist app essentially. And it it was a flexible workflow tool so that teams could build their own checklist to suit their workplace. And that's really, you know, that changed, changed everything, changed my life, that's for sure. Oh, for sure. We'll get to all that. But so effectively, you built an app which started out life as what safety documents, I guess, before apps kind of came into being. And that was a checklist to manage and maintain quality or safety standards. And then you sell that app multiple millions of times. Yeah, it sounds pretty simple when you say it fast, but yeah, iAuditor is is a checklist app. It's always been free for people to use. And if they get to a team of more than 10 using it, then they pay $20 a month per user. But the idea was to make it free, actually. I, I wanted to put it in the hands of everyone, no matter where they worked, in what country. And so it's always been a, a free offering. And then if you know big teams get lots of value from it, then they pay us for it. So just give me a snapshot of what safety culture is now, right now, how big, how many employees you've got, you've expanded globally, you've got offices in a couple of countries in the world. Yeah, so exactly. We've got five offices in in the US, the UK, Manila, Townsville and Sydney. We're about nearly 600 employees. And we've got about 27,000, 28,000 companies that we service as customers. And, you know, we touch about half a million people, I guess, most days in terms of our regular users. And they do about 600 million checks a year in the workplace using the Safety Culture platform. And we've now kind of gone beyond just an app. We're now an operations platform. We allow people to report issues. They can assign actions to people. They can do training. They can integrate with hardware and weather and all sorts of things. So we've kind of become a workflow platform that allows teams to get information to flow to the right people at the right time. And I think like the promise of things like Internet of Things, you know, 15 years ago was you can now measure everything in the workplace. And of course, that never really took off because people didn't need to measure everything. You only need to measure the important things. And so we allow people to build workflows and take information from, you know, a fridge telling us the temperature of it in the case of someone like Coles, and then they can trigger actions if it goes outside of a temperature range. So yeah, it's a, it's a broader technology platform now. And then of course, we underwrite the insurance as well through our company, MIDI, where we can provide better priced insurance for people who are running lower risk businesses. So that was a joint venture tie up with QBE, was it? So you've, you're really diversifying. And plus you mentioned going into the internet of things. Yeah, it's kind of come full circle because I used to, you know, work for the insurance companies as a private investigator. And, you know, I understood the cost of all of this. And so when we started seeing what a business did every day, we could see the behaviors. We could see what they were checking. If they were a restaurant in New York City, we could see if they were walking from the back of the restaurant to the front twice a day and and asking questions like, are the bench tops clean? You know, do things work properly? And so insurance companies were coming from probably 2014 and asking to get access to that data. But I didn't really have any desire to sell our customers data or, or even help insurance companies. It's a pretty old model that hasn't evolved too much. And so we had a few years to think about it. And then when Pat Regan, the CEO of QBE, uh, approached me and, and asked, 
you know, originally they wanted to buy us and we weren't for sale. And so I came up with the idea and said, how about we do a joint venture? We'll offer insurance to our customers. They use technology to run a better business and we'll understand the risk on a day-to-day basis. And so, yeah, it, it has evolved. You know, the, the hardware side of it, we saw Coles supermarkets were checking their fridges multiple times a day and putting the temperature reading into iAuditor, our app. And so I thought, why don't we just send them a sensor and charge them $10 a month with a SIM card in it and it can talk from anywhere in the world. And so now we measure the temperature in operating theatres in the UK and restaurants in the US and all sorts of stuff. And so, you know, we're doing more. We're now looking at telematics from vehicles and being able to trigger workflows based on how a vehicle's being used or where it's located or if a generator's running out of fuel, all these sorts of things. Everything to do with operating a business out in the field, essentially, is, is what we're helping. Yeah, it's extraordinary, really, Luke, the possibilities there, which I guess sort of dawned on you as you went along, and we'll get to some of that. But you mentioned large companies. You have obviously a lot of large companies, are your clients, but also small companies. Just briefly, how does the business model work? Is it a subscription, an annual subscription? Yeah, it's monthly. So we live and die by the quality of our products and customers don't sign up for, you know, massive contracts and things like they did with old enterprise software. This is, you know, the software as a service model or the SaaS model where people pay as they go. If you want to add more people to, to your usage, you can. If you want to take people away, you can. And so it's really all about making sure that we're delivering value for our customers every single month. And if they're more than 11 people on the team, then they, they pay us. If they're up to 10, that's free and they may never pay us. And that's perfectly okay. You know, we, we want to have the majority of the people using our platform for free. That's how we built the business with no marketing and no salespeople. Our customers were our salespeople, the people who used our products. You know, it helped them do their jobs better. And they would then go on to promote our products to the rest of their teams and tell other people because they look good. And so, you know, a, a lot of people would ask, like, how do you build a business with no salespeople? Well, the real secret was that our customers were our salespeople and, and they were the ones that were championing our products. Luke, I guess best of all, and most simply put, you offered and you still offer a low cost mobile solution that could help businesses work on mobile devices. So again, out in their fields, which for many of them are very wide and spread throughout the world, or at least throughout Australia as well. Yeah, we we were a mobile first company once we evolved to technology. When it was just a training document business, you know, I was selling Microsoft Word documents online. I think we sold about 15 or $16 million worth of Word documents. And I only had one and a half staff in that business for most of it. So that was a great little business. And now, you know, as a technology company, we've built this around this freemium offering. So it's a different business model, but I think it's the most efficient model there is. You can build an app and put it into the app store and then distribute it to customers around the world for zero cost. And, you know, we run on an 82% gross profit margin and that's the nature of software. You can build it once and sell it millions of times over. Whereas if we're building furniture, you know, and we want to sell a million tables, we have to actually make a million tables, you know, like Ikea or someone. And so it's a high margin business. But it delivers enormous value and you can distribute your product for zero cost, which is you know unprecedented. Steve Jobs created this wonderful thing called the App Store. You know, I think that came out about 2008, a year after the iPhone. Before we get to that, because I want to just take it a little bit more slowly, let's go back to the genesis of the safety culture idea. Where did it come from? And you started this in Townsville. 
in far north Queensland. It's a beautiful city, interesting people, no doubt, but definitely not a digital <laughs> innovation hub. I think you would agree with me there. That's true, Helm. It's probably not the epicenter of the tech world. It's not Silicon Valley, that's for sure. But, you know, we were, the, the I think, one of two cities to get the MBN. I think it was Hobart and Townsville were the first two in Australia to get the MBN. And so we had good internet. But you're right. It, you know, we came from a regional town and it started as a result of my experience. I was involved in two and a half thousand workers' compensation investigations that I either investigated myself or I managed. And I just felt I was part of the problem and I wanted to be part of the solution. How do you mean part of the problem when you're working as a private investigator? Yeah, people needed to get injured for me to go and spy on them. I was doing surveillance on people who'd been injured at work. So you were essentially looking for workers' comp cheats. Exactly right. Once they'd done something wrong. That was my job, yeah. And so mm. I kind of thought, why don't I plug the hole at the other end and, and help people not have these problems in the first place? Because nobody goes to work and wants to have an injury or have a problem. And so everybody kind of assumes that, you know, things will be okay and then it, sometimes things go wrong. And so the checklist was kind of, I guess, the tool that pilots had been using since the 1930s. And then doctors were using them in the US. Research came out from you know, complication rates being reduced in theatre because they were using checklists to make sure that everybody had washed their hands, that all of the equipment that they were using for a procedure was back and not in the patient's body and things like that. And so, you know, it got me thinking. And then I saw, you know, kids at McDonald's in the bathrooms were using checklists, 14-year-olds. So I thought if pilots, who are some of the highest trained people in our society, and the newest people in the workforce at McDonald's all benefit from checklists, then maybe I should just make a free checklist app that anyone can use. And, and that was really what, what sort of sparked it. So, Luke, I mean, it's quite an extraordinary thing that you came up with, again, solving an idea. But how did you actually decide to create an app? Because you said it started with documents first, because I guess, what, 2004 was well before apps came into being? Four years before. Yeah, that's right. It started with Word documents, selling Microsoft Word documents online. And then I tried to build an online training platform actually in 2007, and that didn't work. And then I tried building a document management portal that you could use online in 2010, and that didn't work. And then in 2009, actually, Marcus Wilson died putting roofing insulation in, in, in Sydney and St. Mary's. And the employer that he worked for used one of our training documents and said that to the regulator, told them that he'd been trained in accordance with that document and he had signed it. But when I looked at our sales records, they'd purchased it two days after he died. <gasps> and so, oh, yeah. Oh, no. So they lied about that. Yeah, it was, it was fraudulent. And so that really got me thinking that this whole idea of compliance is actually not good enough. It's a minimum standard. And you know, people think that if they get a signature on something, that then, then that's good enough. And I just thought, you know what? Compliance is the minimum standard of society. The law is, is not best practice. It's so far from it. If we raised our children just based on what the law says, you'd take them to school, clothe them and feed them, and that's about it. And you know, being a parent, you've got to read to them at night and take them to dancing classes and do all these extra things. And so when I thought about business, I was like, well, it's the same. Like the best teams in the world, if you want to build the next Tesla or you want to, you know, be, be in a Formula One team or something, they're not sitting around saying, okay, everyone, let's be compliant with the law. Of course they need to be compliant, but they're achieving a standard way higher than that. And so you know, when Marcus Wilson died and that incident happened in 2009, I thought, 
okay, I need to move away from this idea where we're just trying to help people be compliant. I want to help them be the best that they possibly can be. So people do their best work every day. And also to stop people using your name sort of fraudulently and saying, oh, yeah, we ticked off his documents when, well, you didn't because you fibbed about that and we need to make sure people do it. Yeah, I think that was an exception. I don't think that was very common. But yeah, I I just think the whole goal of compliance was far too low. So by 2011, I then decided, okay, I think we need to build an app. And I didn't know how to do that. So I had a, a friend who worked for James Cook University. I was actually my friend's wife. Went and met with, with her, Professor Nola Alloway. She introduced me to Professor Ian Atkinson, who ran the computer science course. He introduced me to a student who dropped out called Alan Stevenson. And Alan turned up at my house. He was 21 years old. And we sat down on my kitchen table and I pitched him the idea of this app. He started building it. And that's how it all began. So you didn't know the digital stuff. You knew the insurance stuff, the compliance stuff that you'd learned out of private investigation, but you got this PhD student to help you create your app. Yeah, that's right. He'd built an app once before to help students find their way around the university. And so I said, well, maybe have a a go at building an app like this. Is that the app that has turned into the $2 billion company that you are today? Yeah, pretty much. Like we actually built the first app we built, we had 72 people download it. It was called IJSA and it was just not flexible enough. And so then iAuditor was released about five months later. And we set a goal to have 10,000 downloads in a year. And we got that in a few weeks and we realized, okay, this is, this is definitely onto something. And away it went. And, and iAuditor is still our flagship product today. I want to just step back slightly again. You grew up in Townsville with your mum in a single mum household. Is that correct? Yep. What did you bring to your later career? And you obviously still love being in Queensland, but what did you bring from that period of time growing up in that town and also with your mum? Look, my mum was my number one fan. Whatever I did, she would support, as crazy as that would be. And so, you know, I think mum sort of gave me this limitless thinking, this sort of almost naivety that anything's possible, and I believed it. And so mum was the one that was able to, I guess, instill in me that sense of self-belief. And we also never had any money. And so I was always working and trying to do stuff from about the age of 12 to get pocket money and do things. Mum worked at Telstra. I think she earned about $35,000 a year and, you know, paying off a house and stuff. So I kind of was always trying stuff and mum was supporting me. So what do you think you learned from your mum? Just that literally, you know, anything's possible. I just had a, a limitless sort of a view on the world and that you could try whatever you want to do. My mum was also very open and transparent, you know, probably too much at times, but she loved talking. And, and I think I picked up a bit of that from her as well in terms of, <laughs> you know, talking to people and things. So that, that's all helped. So you left school, as I understand, at 16. So does that mean you didn't get your HSC or equivalent? So What happened in that working life? What were your first jobs that really made an impact on you? We kept moving every time I went to, mum moved house, we'd rent houses and and I kept moving school. So I went to nine schools. So by year 11, start of year 11, I was like completely, you know, lost with schooling. So the first job I got was digging out palm trees at a palm farm up at Crystal Creek, north of Townsville. Then I got a job out of the paper to uh, work at a gas or petrol station pumping petrol. I think I was on $4.25 an hour working for a guy by the name of Bill Smith. And Bill went on to become a mentor for the next 20 odd years until he passed away. And so 
I learned a lot from Bill on Saturday mornings. It would just be Bill and I there. And I would just pick his brain and ask him to tell me, you know, stories about how he used to work two jobs to try and, you know, get enough money to go and buy a business and things like that. And so that shaped a lot of my thinking about business as well and just just fundamentals of business and customer service. And so I was learning a lot at a pretty rapid rate from the age of 16. You clearly didn't like school, but you were hungry to learn from Bill. Yeah, the school system, like when I was really young, I loved school and then I just got bored with it. It was too slow and too structured. And so I think my appetite for learning was always there. And I started reading books a lot from about the age of 15. So the appetite was healthy. I just, you know, didn't have a mentor, didn't have someone that could teach me until Bill came along. And so he was the person that really shaped how I thought about business and what was possible. So I worked for Bill for three months and then started my own business. What, at 17? Yeah, at, at 16, I would have been. Yeah, I, was, I had a learner's permit. I was driving my brother's ute and I was collecting. I had Townsville Glass Recycling was the business name. And I used to go and collect glass from nightclubs and pubs and alcoholics houses who drank far too much beer. And I would, I would put it on a train and send it to Brisbane to be recycled. And so, you know, I was driving around on, my brother, on a learner's permit in, in my brother's ute collecting all this glass at 16. But I went broke in about four months and it didn't cost me anything to, to do it. So I just walked away from it. I uh, worked at another petrol station for a while. I was 17 then doing really long shifts. I worked there for over a year and I, I would have been doing 16-hour days, like 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. some days. And I just loved it. I just loved working. And so I ended up going back and working for Bill. I, I kind of did a study of the baby boomers, I think, and read somewhere that they had created themselves jobs by buying businesses. But now they were getting sort of older, they wanted time, but they were tied to their business. And I thought, well, if I can give them time back, then that's going to be worth something. So I went to Bill at about the age of 17 and pitched to him this idea that I would run the petrol station and another 24-hour petrol station that he had and a wrecking yard and he could go and travel if he wanted to. And so he let me down gently and said, you're probably not quite ready to run all these businesses, but he did a profit share with me. And so by 18, I was earning about $120,000 a year. Extraordinary. Yeah. And kept learning from Bill until the day he fired me for turning up late. <laughs> he fired you after you were running his business or helping him run his businesses. Yeah, that was Bill though. He was tough. You know, I can remember there was 14 staff at the 24-hour servo and the staff used to complain about each other all the time, you know. And one day he said, if, if another person complains to me, I'm going to fire a lot of you. And then the next oh. day he walked in and someone complained. He fired the whole 14 of them. Oh. <laughs> and it was two days before Christmas. And so it's a 24-hour service station. Bill's in there with his wife and kids and sister and everyone trying to do shifts. And uh, that's the kind of guy Bill was. So, sorry, were you in that lot that got fired two days before Christmas? No, no, I wasn't. But I, that was a few years before me. But I was there for another Christmas where I had to work 36 hours straight because no one turned up on Christmas day for their shifts. And so it was a few weeks after that, I was getting tired and just burnt out. And uh, I turned up late and he just said, you've turned up late a couple of times now. I think you need to go. And I was devastated. That, that taught me more than anything. And I think it taught me that getting fired can be a good thing. It was a real big wake up call. And it shaped me forever after that. Like I really, I, I was shocked and just dismayed for probably sort of three or four months. I didn't know what to do. I ended up going to Brisbane and, and getting a job out of the paper eventually and getting a job as a PI and working again. But that taught me a lot. It was like, don't ever turn up late. I think also that you can never get ahead of yourself. You know, you're only as good as the work you did yesterday. 
That is such a, an amazing lesson, so simple, but that he was tough enough and probably too tough to a young guy to give you the sack. How did you get into private investigation? I think you alluded to it before that, you know, maybe it was a little bit soul destroying as a job. How did you link that job to thinking, I can make sort of compliance and this step before it gets to workers' compo much more efficient and effective? I think it's just, you know, my brain tends to want to solve problems. When I see things that are inefficient or don't work well, I naturally want to make them better. And so I think once I got that that job out of the paper, you know, to work as an investigator and got trained up over the next year or so, that just led me to think about this whole system is broken. This compensation system is not a good thing. Like you do not want to end up on workers' comp. People would start drinking earlier in the day because they're sitting at home. They don't have a purpose. Their lawyers are telling them, don't do any work because we're going to get you a payout. And they lose self-esteem. They'd lose their sense of purpose. They'd lose marriages, relationships, all this sort of stuff. And I would see all that unfold. And I just thought this system is not great. I think the intention is great, but you don't want to be part of that. And so that's where, you know, I started to think about alternative ways to fix it. How did you manage your early funding? I funded it from the documents that I was selling. But how did you even sort of set up? What money did you need to set up to even sell those documents? Well, originally I borrowed $10,000 off my dentist. I told him what I was doing back in 2005. He said, I'll, I'll give you some money because I said, I need to open an office in Brisbane at the time. And so he said, I'll come around my house and gave me $10,000 cash that he had. I didn't know how I was going to pay him back or when, but he, he trusted me and I paid him back a couple of months later. And that's how I initially got that going. And then by the time you know, I tried to build it into a technology company, I was then able to, to employ a few staff from the sales of those documents that was coming in each week and build it from there. And so by the time, I think I, we got the first pair of Google Glass in Australia. One of the engineers that worked for me went across to the Google conference in San Francisco. And I ended up on the project on Channel 10 talking about how we're building this inspection app on Google Glass. And then Blackbird Ventures in Sydney, in the venture capitalists, they flew to Townsville. Rick Baker came up. And by then, we're in my garage at home on acreage on the northern side of Townsville. And he came down the driveway and said, we want to give you some money and help you guys do this. There's a bit more to it than just that, but that's essentially wow. what happened. <laughs> that's just extraordinary. So Blackbird obviously have been a great venture capital firm in Australia, and they've backed a lot of startups. But he came looking for you. You didn't even have to go and pitch an idea. That's right. It's funny because I was actually in Sydney a few months before and I did pitch it to one of the Blackbird team, Bill Barty at the time, and he didn't really think much of it. And my pitch was probably terrible as well. And, and what was your pitch for? For this checklist app that we were building. Anyway, that's where it ended, I thought. And then after I was on the project, Rick saw it and then came up. And you know, we didn't even know what a venture capitalist was. We had no idea. You know, All I knew was that everyone should wear shoes that day because someone important was coming. And, <laughs> and we went to Subway and you know, I said, let's just get a big platter. That'll, that'll impress him. Like, how do you impress an investor? A platter of Subway will definitely do it. There you go, it worked. And we had these clocks on the wall because I kept 
trying to write to customers around the world. And I never knew whether it was morning or night. And I'd Google the time zone. And so when the investor was coming, I was like, we should get some clocks up and put like the city under them, London, Tokyo, whatever. And it looks like we're international, which we were. But <laughs> uh, And so we're in this garage with these clocks double-sided taped on the wall while Rick's there talking and I'm trying to pitch to him. You know, Tokyo just falls off the wall and smashes on the ground. And Rick, Rick turns around and says, oh my God, your clock's just fallen down. I said, well, that's never happened before. <laughs> 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 Seeing it was only put up two minutes before he arrived. <laughs> exactly. And so a couple of the, the, the engineers were meeting in the garage, the lawn locker where my right on mile was, and they're saying, we need more tape, we need to do something. They're all falling oh. down. London's about to go. So it was pretty funny. But uh, Rick saw the, the value in what we're building. And even then, I wasn't sure if we would take investment. I just thought about building a traditional business. I didn't know about you know funding it through any other way. But when I met Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar as part of that investment, those guys sort of screened me for it. That's when I realized that, okay, there's a whole lot here that we, we don't know how to you know, think big enough. When was this and how did you come about meeting Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar from Atlassian? Yeah, this was 2013. And so they were the biggest investors in the original Blackbird Fund, which was, I think, a $29 million fund. And as part of this, this was the first company that Blackbird had put a million dollars into. Back then, they couldn't invest more than a million in one company. These days, they can put a lot more in. So this was the biggest investment Blackbird had made. And Mike and Scott had to meet me over video and just, you know, sense check, I guess, the investment. It was from that point on that particularly Scott then started wanting to help and, and getting involved. And it kind of became his sort of side project for the next five years where he was investing a lot of time into myself personally and the company to help us grow. And he, he's helped us more than any other person for sure. We'll come back to him because he's obviously, you know, a huge force in the Australian tech industry. And and I want to know more about what he brought to you. But when did you sort of, uh, you started to talk before about, you know, when Apple became the conduit, certainly the iPhone for apps and the app store appeared. How big a change? How did that turbocharge you? Well, it changed everything. Like the, the distribution model now had been laid out for us. Up until then, you know, like Microsoft Windows was sold through Harvey Norman stores or, you know, it was on a computer when you bought it. And so these sort of partnerships and deals were the way that software got sold or people went out and, and sold it on the street as, as salespeople going door to door. And so that distribution model paved the way. And then Atlassian as well had a product that was distributed over the internet and people installed it originally on their premises. So I think this kind of freemium low-cost model had started to spin up and that's what really changed enterprise software, this, this, this ability to get software in the hands of people who normally don't buy software. Like that's what's interesting is we bypass the procurement channels of all these big companies because a frontline worker or a frontline manager who runs a restaurant, they could download our software and start using it for free. And then if they needed to, they could expense it on their credit card. But I guess part of it is why would they want to? I mean, unless the company is saying we have to comply, unless the owner of a small business is saying we want all of you, you small team of 10 employees, why would an individual worker just take it on themselves to use your app? Because they want to maintain high standards for their customers. Like a great operator in any business wants to deliver a fantastic experience for their customers. And checklists have been a way that they've done it for years. Like when you open a shop each day, you've got to check that you know everything's set right. This gave them the technology to be able to do that easier and better than they, they ever had before. And so 
that's what drove it was their own benefit personally. And then they would send reports and send the information up the chain to senior managers. And that would then, I guess, you know, allow it to spread across an organisation. When sort of safety culture, even your original idea, was it a big vision for you that you had or was it always perhaps a smaller vision? Oh, I'll just do this, see if it works. That's a great question, Helen. I think it's evolved over time. I remember in 2004, I hoped that we sold training documents to every business in Townsville. And then it was like, well, actually, we could probably do this all over Queensland. And then it was like, well, actually, we could probably do this all over Australia. And then by the time I started to think about how we could use technology to solve a global problem, then the thinking expanded again. But, you know, I think you're limited by the questions that you ask yourself. Like, uh, you know, if you ask, how do we reach all the customers in Queensland? That's a very different question to how do we reach all the customers across the world? And so, you know, I think asking the right questions leads you to, you know, better answers. And it, that that's taken time. Even, you know, I think we've raised $260 million or something today and, and we've been profitable for 18 months or so. The way I think about building the business has evolved based on the resources I have at any point in time. So if you've got $50,000 in the bank, then you know, you think, well, maybe we could get a contractor for a month or two to do some work for us. If you've got 500,000 in the bank, it's like, maybe we could get a couple of people full time. If you've got 5 million, it's like, we could get a small team. And so that has evolved. And I've noticed within myself that thinking has evolved. And it normally takes me about 12 months after we take investment to grow into the mindset of being able to deploy that really well. So how much of a struggle were those first few years, long before the VC, the venture capital people came riding along? Constantly, I was constantly questioning whether or not, you know, this would work. I think it goes through stages where for a while, you know, things are good and and you kind of execute on the vision that you have. And then you take on, I tend to take on more than I can chew, you know, and then I'm struggling again. And so I think it's been a constant ebb and flow in terms of the amount of stress, but there's certainly been periods. I remember we built our first cloud backend because when we first gave people this app on their phone, we didn't have any cloud. We didn't even really know what a cloud was, as probably lots of people still don't. And you know, we had airlines in South America emailing us saying, we're using your app, but we like lost a phone and or an iPad. Where is all this backed up? Because if we don't have the reports and the data for the regulator, we can get grounded as an airline. So, oh, wow. So tell us, where is all this stuff backed up? And we're like, oh, it's not backed up anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> and so, you know, that's pretty stressful. And I'd, I'd say to Al, we need to build a cloud. And so, you know, his friend Tristan, you know, we got him and he started building the cloud and, you know, that didn't work that well and all sorts of this stuff. Is, so- this is your PhD friend who became, well, an employee who became a friend. Well, Alan dropped out of uni. Oh, he dropped out. He dropped out of uni in in like year three. He was never a PhD student. So it was Al just doing his best. And then, you know, we got Al's friend Tristan and we just kept that getting more people and stumbled along. A couple of Townsville boys helped you out. Yeah, but it's very stressful early on and, you know, a lot yeah. of sleepless nights and trying to figure out how we build stuff we don't know how to build. A lot of people say, oh, gee, I wish I knew how to build an app. It's like, well, we just figured it out as we went. Like we didn't start out really knowing how to do any of this stuff very well. And I mean, for you, correct me if I'm wrong, you had no real tech experience None. at all. None. No digital, no computer experience. None. And anyone on our engineering team that's worked with me would probably say I still don't have any. I've, you know, provided, I guess, the... I can see the business 
case and, yeah. the, and the problem we're trying to solve and the technology is a means to an end. You know, we've got some really clever people who help us solve these big problems and you can think and operate at scale. When you think about technology, you can solve very big problems in a very automated way. And so that's, I guess, where I come in. Yeah, well, you can now. So just am I right in thinking that for the first virtually seven years, it was you and a couple of these young guys in Townsville who was helping you, no VC backing. You were managing this growth and this scale up and this creation of a new product on your own. Yeah, well, the documents business kind of was only one and a half staff. So that was 2004 to 2011. And then Alan came as the first engineer in 2011 and we took investment in 2013. So two years after we released the app, I guess, you know, 18 months later or something, we took investment. So that was kind of the time frame. And then we took investments at every 18 months or so after that. Okay. So it's so interesting. Why did you go to VC? Why did you go that route, venture capital for money? No one had any money. The banks wouldn't give me money. Mum had no money. My friends didn't have any money. The dentist had given me 10 grand, but I, I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any you know, rich friends and people like that. And so I'm just a kid from Townsville. And so you know, even when the investment opportunity came along, it, I was like, I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but it was because I met Scott and Mike and realized they were a lot further ahead of me with Atlassian, which today is worth, you know, $70 billion. I was like, these guys are way smarter than me. I absolutely want to work with them. And so that's why I took the money. And that was the decision behind it. It was an expensive round. I got, you know, 28% of the company for $2 million in the end. Yeah, that's they've done okay Ooh, out of it. Okay. So they got 28% of the company and you only got 2 million bucks. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it was on a $6.5 million valuation. Does that sort of smart or do you think, no, I needed that then? Yeah, 100%. Don't regret it for a second. Like it changed the course of everything. We, you know, it just changed the way I thought. Scott pushed me and challenged me to think so much bigger. And I think, you know, that's part of the challenge these days is most people just don't think big enough. And I'm constantly trying to push myself and the team to think bigger because unless you can, you know, dream up how this could be, you certainly can't then go and do it. And so the value of that is enormous. We would not be here if it wasn't for that. So what would you say you really learned from say Scott Farquhar in particular, given you said he's really taken it on as a, a side business almost for him. He's really taken a huge interest in you. Yeah, he, he did for probably five years or so. It was a lot of commitment from him to help me. But Scott was the only person, I guess, that I could, he would ask me every time, how are you doing? Like, and he'd actually want an answer. And, and you know, you could go deep with him. And it, it didn't matter how stressed or what I was dealing with, I could tell him because he'd been through it all himself. And so it was a great relationship like that. So he'd always start with making sure I'm taking care of myself. Because if I'm not looking after myself, then I'm not going to be able to take care of the team and anyone else. And so things like that, where you just, you know, I had someone who would pull me up and kind of say, look, you're perhaps getting a bit burnt out or you've got to find a balance or whatever. And then other times, you know, hiring people, he would help me find people. Our first VP of engineering was the third employee at Atlassian, Anton Maskaboy. He came in and absolutely changed the way we, we worked. And so it's helped in every sense, like from hiring people to the way I personally operate each day to, you know, what we look for in other people and then how we think about our business model as 
well. He's helped with pricing. And, you know, when do you ask for a credit card? Do you give them a trial and ask for a credit card at the end of the trial? Or do you ask for a credit card up front? Does that change the conversion rate to a paid customer? All these sorts of nuances. There's a million, you know, millions of decisions that have to be made in building, you know, a global tech business. And so Scott was able to, to guide me through all that. Yeah, just extraordinary. And it's so interesting that the first thing he helped you with that, you know, sticks in your mind is that he was really helpful in your mental health, your ability as a person to function. Absolutely. It's critical. And it's something that, you know, I think Jeff Bezos talks about making sure he gets eight hours sleep a night. And I think, you know, for many, many years, I didn't get much sleep, probably aged a bit for it along the way. And as of now, you know, scaling a bigger business and I think about how to grow it, you know, much bigger than where it is today. I need to make sure that I'm thinking clearly, I'm fresh. I can't do that if I'm burnt out all the time. Like that works, I think, from a task oriented basis where you're firefighting and you've got every day there's problems. You can kind of run a long way just on adrenaline. But when you actually have to think creatively and think outside of the box, that's where you need to be able to be present and, and, and be rested and think. And so, you know, I think it took a, a while to build. I've got a great team of people now who help run the company with me. And I think, you know, that's given me the space to be able to think big again and think creatively because while we're through the mad scaling days, we went from 85 people to 320 in 18 months. You're constantly just firefighting. You're on the back foot the whole way. And so, you know, I think those sorts of things change. Extraordinary. Uh, how close do you think failure has been or how close is it always for a startup? I think for the first four or five years, it was a lot of self-doubt and a lot of questioning and, you know, can we do this? Can I do this? Like, why am I doing this? Like all these questions that keep you up at night. And so once we got to a certain point, though, you realize there's a, a, a momentum, particularly if you're not burning lots of money, all of a sudden you've now got a sustainable business. You know, we were burning $2 million a month there for a while. Today, you know, we've got over 100 million in cash in the bank and, and, you know, we don't burn money unless now we want to. So we're starting to invest in brand and do a bit of marketing and things like that. And so today it's a very different level of stress to what it was when it was survival mode. So I think after those first four years, five years or so, it, it probably got easier. You're building your product platform. We talked briefly before about the internet of things. You're going into that with sensors and that sort of thing. You've started to expand globally. But can I ask why Kansas City and why Manchester? Why have you got offices there? Well, we did have one in San Francisco on the corner of 5th and Market Street, downtown San Francisco. And San Francisco is just a zoo, like the amount of crap that gets talked and people that are trying to hang off the back of your successful products and companies. It's ridiculous. And so- really. Yeah. So, so what, you mean you can't sort of see who's genuine, who's true, who's going to help your business or who's going to be a real customer? You've got to sort through a fair bit and you're competing with the absolute world's best companies in terms of, you know, product tech companies. So the reason Kansas City came about for us was because a fire department lieutenant in the Kansas City Fire Department was a customer and they'd use safety culture across their fleet. And one day he contacted me and said, I would love to work for you guys. You're changing the world and I think I can have a much bigger impact. And so he became our, our US employee number one. Wow, that's fantastic. He was in the fire department. Yeah, he gave up his career as a, as a lieutenant in the fire department and 
he started working from home and helping our US customers because our US customer base is our largest customer base, about 26% of our customers. And so he started building a team out there. And so it was a few years later, we opened the San Francisco office, but I closed it 10 months after that and just kept building in, in Kansas City. And we've got a team of about 80 odd people there today. And they're a fantastic team. They, they relate to our customers well. So they're more sort of sales support? Yeah, the customer support and customer success. So if customers want help to deploy safety culture across their business or they, they're trying to add more users, things like that, they're on the ground, they can help. And then in Manchester, it's kind of similar. We set up an office in Manchester. We found great people there. We didn't need to be hiring in London. And so it's, it's I guess, you know, a more sensible spot for us. And again, the people are fantastic. There's, there's so much fun and down to earth, our kind of people, my kind of people. Yeah. Oh, good. So in 2016, you raised again 30 million Australian dollars, I think, in your Series B funding round, led by a big global player. Did that mark a huge step change? Yeah, look, I was just running as fast as I could. So it was all a bit of a whirlwind. But yeah, we had um, Jan Hammer from Index Ventures out of London. He came out and wanted to invest and, you know, again, introduced us to other great people. Uh, Paul Kwan, who ran Morgan Stanley in Silicon Valley for 20 years, he became then a mentor and someone who helped us quite a bit. That was through that investment. And so there's a whole bunch of different benefits that came from, from working with great investors. And, you know, I think too, it was kind of interesting. Once I got to a certain point, I started to meet people who are actually the best in the world at what they do. And I was surprised just how nice and down to earth most of those people are because I was dealing with, I think, a layer of people who were trying to be someone for a long time. And there's just a lot of fluff. And, and so all of a sudden, I started getting access to great people. And most of them are just nice people. It's interesting that all of a sudden, you're getting access to some of the most successful and interesting and interested investors in the world. So you must have been doing something very right to even get access to these sort of players. Yeah, like our go-to-market motion, you know, in how we get customers, like that was so efficient. And a lot of people say that as an Australian company, we didn't have much access to capital. So we had to get very efficient and, and be disciplined in how we built businesses. But so by the time US investors or European investors looked at us, we were actually often further along than you know the US companies who were trying to raise money when they've got very limited customer base and, and an unproven business model. We kind of already had that. And there was a number, a metric that they really liked was our cohort net retention. And for anyone listening, it probably doesn't mean much, but basically it's your ability to retain and expand customers over time. And so if you had 100 customers now, a year from now, on average, we would have 182 customers with or users in that business. Meaning they wouldn't be churning, they'd be engaged customers and then you'd build on them. Exactly right, Helen. Yeah. So our net retention ratio is 182%, which for every 100 we have today, we have 182 in a year. And that was just, you know, really top of the top, sort of top 1% of tech companies, software companies in the world. And that's why investment kept coming to us. And, you know, Lee Fixel then from Tiger out of New York, he came to us again in 2016 and we passed on it. Well, actually, we passed on those guys in 2016 and then he came in 2018 and led around. So, you know, all of a sudden we had really interesting people who wanted to invest, guys who manage money for Mark Zuckerberg and different people like that. It was, it was pretty interesting. Who would be, you know, just putting their hand up to say, we want to help you guys scale? Extraordinary. And I think that's a great spot to take a little break. We're going to come back with part two with Luke Anir next week. So stay tuned. Luke, thanks so much for joining me. I'll talk to you soon. 
Sounds great. Thanks, Helen. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.